when you first read the confessions, it's almost like you're listening in on someone in prayer. You know, we mentioned that the dialogues constitute Augustine's first writings. Well, in some sense, he never really abandons the genre. He puts it in a different way. It's a dialogue between himself and God, right? And it's as if we're kind of walked in on him at prayer, intruding on his, in his bedroom as he's praying to God. It's very authentic. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Dr. Gerald Borsma, Associate Professor of Theology at Ave Maria University and a good friend and colleague. I'm delighted to be here, Michael. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Well, thanks, Gerald, for being here. And uh, today we're really excited to kind of dive into the thought of one of the great uh, theologians, the great doctors, the great father of the church, St. Augustine of Hippo. It's hard to probably over-exaggerate Augustine's influence on really the way that we have articulated uh, the biblical revelation, right? right especially right, yeah. in, in the West. And uh, so I just think it's a wonderful time to kind of get to know Augustine, to get to know his teaching. And for uh, listeners who may not know, right, you've been studying Augustine, I think, off and on for what, over 15 years and so, uh, yeah. published a couple now uh, getting ready to publish almost several books on Augustine and uh, countless articles. Uh, so it's a wonderful opportunity for uh, listeners and viewers to be able to kind of get a little sneak peek into your course that you also teach on Augustine for sure. our students. Uh, so one thing I wanted to just ask you a little bit about is, you know, what about people that kind of sometimes will often use the word Augustinian um, somehow as though it's like a pessimistic worldview? You know, I want to, you know, Augustine teaches original sin. Augustine kind of teaches a negative outlook on humanity um, and these sorts of things. How right. would you respond to that? Right. Well, I mean, Augustine, as you say at the outset, is a towering figure. Mm -hmm. right? He has a kind of an immortal legacy, I think, apart from the Apostle Paul. It's hard to figure another person who's given <laughs> mm -hmm. such definitive shape yeah. uh, to the way in which we think about our faith. And so I think that, that I think initial staging should put the question in some perspective. Mm -hmm. If Augustine is, is pessimistic, then the Christian faith is pessimistic. Mm -hmm. And that is not the case at all. I think if you look at Augustine's corpus as a whole, you see in countless places the kind of optimism, the joy, the hope that radiates from his theology. You have to remember that Augustine's first foray into the faith was in response to the Manichaeans. Mm -hmm. And if there's anything that marked a Manichaean, it was this indomitable pessimism, right? And Augustine's mm -hmm. optimism about grace, mm -hmm. about the goodness of creation, about God's working in our souls to join us to himself, um, very much the opposite of the pessimistic vision of the world that you have from, from the Manichaeans and their associates. Yeah, that's, that's a beautiful, beautiful way of beginning. So let's maybe just talk a little bit about uh, how did you how did you set up the course on Augustine, right? Such a yeah. big figure. I think there was a line for, was it Isidore who said that anybody who claims to have read all of Augustine must be lying? Right, exactly. Someone has to be selective. <laughs> exactly. So um, what were some of the, the big themes uh, that you maybe wanted right. students to walk away with? Or how did you think about what was the most important in trying to organize Augustine, so that 
you know, students would be able to learn. I wanted to give students kind of exposure to the breadth of Augustine, but also kind of, you could say, his, his greatest hits. Okay. Right? So that students mm -hmm. go away from the course having read, you could say, the big things mm -hmm. in the Augustinian corpus. And in some sense, I structured the course chronologically. So first we started with his early works. And what's fascinating about Augustine's early works, uh, some written before his baptism, in fact, mm -hmm. and some after, is that they're all dialogues, right? So Augustine's first eight works are exclusively dialogues. Yeah. And then he moves away from that genre. Mm -hmm. He never again writes a dialogue. Mm -hmm. So that's in itself an interesting question. Why the dialogue yeah. and why abandon the mm -hmm. dialogue? Now, what's going on in those early works, which I thought it would be so fascinating to spend some time there initially, is Augustine's engaging with his kind of philosophic legacy. If you remember, Augustine's deeply learned in the Latin classics. You know, he's familiar with rhetorical, grammatical, philosophic legacy. Familiar certainly with people like Virgil and Cicero, but also Plutarch, uh, Plotinus, Quintilian, Terence, and he, he's very much at home in that world, and now he's trying on his fledgling faith, and seeing how those two come together, right, his classical formation, both rhetorical and philosophic, and this faith that he's taking seriously intellectually for the first time, trying to give a reasoned account intellectually of the faith that, you know, he had kind of unreflexively taken from his mother, Monica, but now thinking about, right, yeah. can, can, he, can he reason about this? So that, that's fascinating, I think, and spending some time there in the early works, again, four dialogues he writes before he goes down to Milan to be baptized, and then four works uh, when he goes back to Africa before his, his ordination, and while still in Rome, about to sail for Africa. Is, maybe one, uh, is there one uh, dialogue of, of his early writings that you uh, that you either particularly find kind of easy to teach or maybe one that you just enjoy reading yourself. Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, one that I always gravitate towards and both I enjoy teaching and I enjoy reading is De Beata Vita, which is yeah. translated On the Happy Life. Yeah. Right? It's actually very similar to a title that Seneca has of his, one of his early dialogues. Mm -hmm. and in both cases, it's, it's the quest for happiness, for flourishing, for fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And in the kind of heady maelstrom that's the kind of classical antiquity, all the different philosophic accounts share one common question, right? What makes for happiness? Mm -hmm. How are we yeah. to achieve flourishing, fulfillment? And, you know, you have your peripatetics, your Platonists, your Stoics, your Epicureans. And in that kind of heady maelstrom again, Augustine comes in and says, uh, you know, engaging with those figures that only Christ and embracing the wisdom of Christ constitutes happiness. But what's so distinctive about that dialogue is that one of the central figures is his mother, Monica. Right? Mm -hmm. who speaks about her wisdom, uh, not from, from learning and study, but by a direct infused gift of the Holy Spirit, which allows her to make the decisive entry at critical points in that dialogue. So thinking about Monica, mm -hmm. uh, very early in Augustine's writings, uh, and the way she kind of stays with him mm -hmm. is, a, is a fascinating thing. Right, she becomes the right, a decisive figure uh, in the, if, if you want to think about it, like a, the Platonic dialogues, right. Uh, in the Augustinian dialogues, uh, it's, it's, it's Monica who shows up to share wisdom. Yeah. So you think of, of uh, Diotima, for example, in the symposium. Yeah. Well, Monica takes that place. Okay. The Vita. Yeah, that's great. Can you, um, how would you summarize his argument? Because uh, I think Plato and Aristotle and Seneca, you mentioned a Stoic. In many ways, they say many true things about happiness. Yeah. Kind of true things about uh, the happy life. What is it? What is it that Augustine finds kind of wanting in those accounts and then thinks that Christ supplies? Right, right. Well, I think you really have to get into the, the weeds somewhat here in terms okay. of, mm -hmm. well, how do the Stoics think 
happiness comes to the human person. Mm-hmm. Well, it's especially through internal appropriation of virtue, mm-hmm. right? Uh, being able to show a sense of apatheia, not being affected or affected by external goods mm-hmm. or, or external uh, sorrows. Um, and, and the opposite of the spectrum, you have the Epicureans, right? For whom all good is on the outside. Mm-hmm. You've maybe heard the, uh, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Very much the kind of Epicurean uh, maxim. And well, the, the peripatetics, Aristotle school, said, well, it's a bit of both, right? You have to have the goods of the body, but in addition, you have to have internal virtue. That's kind of the, uh, we could say, the, the ultimate source of happiness, but it's a happiness proper to man. A man is, has a body, so he needs friends, some wealth, some, some basic leisure to be able to pursue contemplative questions. Now, Augustine notes all these various schools consist of happiness in this life, right? Either externally or internally or a combination thereof. No, says Augustine, happiness is the preserve of the next life. And that's a mainstay in his writings. Already in De Beata Vita, which I mentioned, there Monica makes that decisive interjection that happiness is possessing Christ for all eternity. But at the very late in his life, in the City of God, in Book 19, that's ultimately where it ends up as well. Yeah. Right? Happiness consists ultimately in the vision of God given yeah, to Christ. Right. Yeah, there is that somehow death must be overcome, that any happiness we have that would last and that would be in this life, right, would always be provisional. Right. Uh, and yeah. any kind of lasting happiness, right, would have to be somehow death has been overcome, yeah. right? eternal life has been given. Yeah. Uh, we, we possess not only... And, and in a way, we have to possess, as you put it, not just eternal life, though. It's not just, though, just life continues. We have to have a new life. We have to have a life where we would be able to know and love right. uh, the God who knows and loves us. That's Yeah, that's beautiful. Right, in that right. sense that we actually, um, you know, we, 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 have to, we have to get what we want. Right. Right. But we have to want what is ultimately, right, God and not just God abstractly, but the creator of the universe who is now incarnate right. in Jesus Christ. And it's yeah. that transformation, yeah. especially of our knowing and loving, yeah. that Augustine details in his kind of his own journey in the confessions mm-hmm. in such poignant personal ways. Yeah, so maybe you know, having kind of looked a little bit at these early dialogues, um, you, why don't we talk a little bit about the confessions, probably his best-known work. Right. You know, uh, right. I think it's a... Um, assigned, and I know we assign it at Ave Maria University in our core curriculum. Right. Uh, well, and many secular and, schools do as well. And you even know, secular schools do, absolutely. It's really one of these great works of, you know, Western culture. How, how, do, we, how do you try to introduce students uh, to the confessions? Yeah. Well, I think that's the first place is, you know, that it does have this kind of enduring character, that it's widely read and mm-hmm. continues to be widely read, continues to speak to people, yeah. right? And in that sense, it's a, well, it's a classic, and a classic is one of those texts that, you know, you can t- continue as an individual to return to mm-hmm. with profit. You know, I've been teaching the Confessions for 15 years. I've read it for, I don't know, many years. Uh, and every semester, it kind of speaks to me in new ways. Mm-hmm. Something I didn't notice before mm-hmm. arrests me. And what's true yeah. for the individual is also true for society, right? Yeah. Classics are those texts that kind of, they form a people. Mm-hmm. You think of Homer does for the Greeks or Virgil, mm-hmm. you know, for the Latins, Dante for the Italians. Well, what the Confessions does is it writes a story for the Christian people, right? And Augustine's quite intentional about that when he writes the Confessions. I mean, he styles himself, the protagonist in the narrative, as the new Virgil, right? Who's also traveling about the Mediterranean orbit, also kind of not listening well, we might say, to the divine command. And then finally, he sets sail for Carthage, from Carthage to Rome, 
right? Yeah. And also leaves someone you know, weeping on the beach as he sets sail for Rome. So in many ways, that's one way to read the Confessions. It's kind of the Christian people's new epic. Yeah, so just as a, right in, you know, um, what, uh, Virgil's Aeneid, you have uh, really, right, the story of Aeneas and then the founding of Rome. Right. Uh, in the Confessions, you have, right, Augustine telling the story of, he's both Virgil and Aeneas, he, and he's telling the story not of the founding of Rome, but in a way of the founding of, yeah. to a certain extent, right, you know, the, the church that we live in. That's, that's exactly um, right. Uh, which is yeah. fascinating, because if you think about it that way, then uh, often if people are familiar with the Confessions, they may know that the first nine chapters are kind of more uh, fit within a more standard story autobiography. Yeah. Ten is a little bit within that. And then by the time you get to 11, 12, and 13, the last three books, you're dealing with very complex matters of reading the, the Genesis. That's right. That's right. Uh, That's and, why it's helpful, I think, yeah. always to start with the the initial books. Yeah. You know, because they're mm-hmm. those are those are very personal. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's Augustine's own story, very personal, poignant tale yeah. of, of conversion. Uh, it's also an everyman tale, which is why I think mm. it continues kind of echo yeah. in, in so many different mm-hmm. people, and they can read it and relate to it. You know, when you first read the Confessions, it's almost like you're listening in on someone in prayer, right? And that's why, you know, we mentioned that the dialogues mm-hmm. constitute Augustine's first writings. Well, in some sense, he never really abandons the genre. He puts it in a different different way. It's a dialogue between himself and, and God. You're right. Doesn't the, um, I don't know about in the Latin, but doesn't it begin uh, with Augustine's Confessions and begin with you, O Lord? Yeah. Great are you, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Yeah. Right? Um, again, that's not how most of us would start our own autobiography. Mm-hmm. We might speak about formative influences, our parents, our teachers, our hometown. Yeah. It's not there in Augustine, right? Mm-hmm. Instead, what you get is uh, Augustine at prayer, right? Mm-hmm. And it's as if we're kind of walked in on him at prayer, intruding on his mm-hmm. in his bedroom as he's yeah. praying to God, mm-hmm. right? Which gives it, uh, yeah, a real dynamism. Yeah. It's very authentic. And, and in a way, helping us, when we kind of watch Augustine narrate his life, you know, it's almost in the second person, right? It's yeah. not in the first person, it's in the second. He's almost kind of writing it to yeah. you, oh Lord. Right. That we begin then to realize, I have to learn to be able to tell my, to understand who I am. You're right. Because fundamentally, who are you, Lord? You created me. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. I walked away from you. Right, right. You brought me back. Yeah, right? uh, and it's really uh, very, you know, educative in that way. And in a strange way, I don't know if you ever, you know, if you ever have this experience when you're reading great novels or great epics or great stories. Uh, you know, you you kind of wish you could live in those stories. Right. Uh, yeah. And yeah. this is something that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien writes about in on fairy stories. He says we wish we could live in stories. We That's wish we good. could live in great fairy tales. Uh, but in a certain sense, when you read the confessions, in a way, you can't you can't enter into the, you know, kind of Augustine's life in the fourth century. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but in another way, you can because we can actually carry out the exact story that Augustine has when we begin to narrate our lives right. as this kind of heroic journey, both away from God right. and then the return to God. Yeah. Could you say a little bit more about uh, how, you know, he begins to, like, how he talks about his own, like, wandering away from God? Because yeah, I think that yeah. does play a big role in the 
first half of the confessions. Right, right. And the word wandering is important there, right? He uses the word errores, where we get our English word error from. Okay. But that's that's above all the, the, the adjective that describes um, the, the Aeneas, right? Oh, uh, Aeneas okay. is mm-hmm. known for his wanderings. Mm-hmm. And so Augustine appropriates that word and gives it a certain theological spin, mm-hmm. right? He is alienated, wandering from God, right? And the story of of the confessions is a story of conversion, or really multiple conversions, right? Mm-hmm. It's the way in which grace uh, operates on his knowing and his loving, right? Uh, and all of that, I think, is already very tightly wound up uh, in the very first uh, paragraphs of the confessions. And then the rest of the work kind of unfurls those yeah. kind of uh, major themes. And so in book one, many of us have read it, you know, you have the scene with Augustine uh, first as an infant, mm-hmm. right? And when you first read this, and my students first read it, they're, they're often perplexed, right? You have this rather you know, dour description of infant behavior, mm-hmm. right? Thrashing violently, seeking to attack its mother, <laughs> vengeful and jealous at its petty brother, drinking milk. Uh, but but what, what Augustine is doing there is subtly, between the lines, uh, telling us that there's something wrong with the will, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that original sin affects the will that we don't naturally and easily incline to the good, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that the acquisition of virtue is difficult, that we're not born with kind of native reserves of virtue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the second half of book one, he turns to his boyhood at school. And there you turn from the will to the intellect, right? And that, that learning is difficult. Augustine says, I learn nothing unless compelled, right? He had to be beaten to learn, uh, which, you know, caused him great psychological angst, he tells us later. Um, but, but again, the idea that we don't kind of jump into truth with great alacrity. Mm-hmm. That's hard work as well. So but there's something kind of wrong at the outset with our loving and our knowing, mm-hmm. with our will and our intellect. I also try to remind students that infans means uh, without speech. Right. Uh, so you have two big themes there. One is, well, we are without speech to speak to God and to speak to ourselves. And the whole confessions is the learning to speak, yeah. Uh, before yeah. we can learn to speak truthfully, mm-hmm. right? Which the creed gives us that ultimate truth. The exactly. problem is yeah. culture misshapes us into a misspoken uh, speaking. So we learn to speak about God falsely. We learn to speak about ourselves falsely. Yeah. Uh, we begin somewhat disordered, but then when we go to school and we learn about business and we learn about the ways of the world, we just fall even more deeply. Um, so I, I think Augustine really has a beautiful sense that neither, right, on our own and then the, the, the way that the culture misshapes us. And the irony is I think many people have a sense for, at least today, the way that they we're somehow caught within something that we can't quite get out of. Right. And, yeah. and I think Augustine had a great had a great sense for that. Well, that's a good way of putting it. You know, the sense of being trapped. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that suffuses the early books of the Confessions. Yeah. You know, yeah. both so as then, a young man there yeah, yeah. Um, in, in his studies, and then later when he goes off to Carthage in book three for an mm-hmm. education, he gets trapped in mm-hmm. what he calls Manichaean bird lime. Yes, uh, yes, uh, yeah. The sense of, of being adrift and not knowing how to get out. Yeah, and, and even that sense of the Manichees uh, that, you know, it's not just being spiritual isn't, intrinsically good being religious isn't intrinsically good it's very it can be even harder if you end up adopting a false religion right, right. that's going to yeah. you know uh so what, what are some what are a couple maybe just you know in a in, in brief a couple things that lead him out of that trap right yeah. and home 
sure. ultimately uh, to the Catholic faith. Well, Augustine was ripe picking for the Manichaeans, right? He's young, bright, eager for truth, desperate for truth. Yeah. And they constantly hold out that they have some kind of secret teaching that they're mm -hmm. going to relate to him. And so when he's a student in Carthage, a uh, very precocious young man, he's really on his way, uh, he gets stuck with them. Right, mm -hmm. and he he describes it like like I said as being kind of trapped in bird lime for nine long years. He was with them, um, and and getting out, extricating himself from that was a very difficult process. And really, it's it's the workings of grace, but the secondary causes through which this this worked, God's liberating effects, um, are his really his encounter with Ambrose, right, mm -hmm. the great preacher from Milan. Augustine tells us that he went to go hear Ambrose preach. Right here is Augustine, a budding rhetor. Ambrose is known as a consummate rhetorician. Uh, perhaps he sees, sees a certain kinship, admiration, certainly, for Ambrose. So he goes to the cathedral and hears him preach. And he says he was blown away, not just by how he spoke, but by what he said. Right? And that, that kind of, I, I think, uh, gripped Augustine and made him th rethink much of what the Manichaeans had told him uh, about the Catholic faith. That it, that it was superstitious, simple, that it imagined God to be consigned to a body, that, that the creation was the result of an evil demiurge, that our, our redemption is really God taking us out of the physical cosmos up to this luminous spiritual realm. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Man uh, Ambrose taught Augustine to see uh, the world, we could say, in a participatory way. Right? Yeah. That say more, what does participation mean there? Well, that the realm of spirit... Uh, or in the Manichaean terms, light, yeah. is very much related to this order, that the mm. good God created it, mm -hmm. that he's present in it, animating it, yeah. uh, filling it with his own life and being. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't intend to pull us up out of and away from this world, mm -hmm. but to redeem us in it and through it, that God yeah. himself took mm -hmm. on a body. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it continues in the sacramental economy to extend himself in corporeal, physical, tangible, yeah. tactile means. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. and so, so you kind of avoid this dualism of spirit and matter right. that, or of kind of somehow a good God and a bad God, these sorts of false views of the Manichees too, the idea that God right. is the good creator created us both spirit and matter. Precisely. And therefore, um, if our spirit and matter fall, then God redeems us um, right by becoming incarnate and then creating, recreating us, yeah. right? Uh, and, and so Ambrose allowed him, Augustine, to see the kind of intellectual truth yeah. of this, that, that this made yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, surely Ambrose availed himself of, of what Augustine was familiar with, mm -hmm. namely some of the kind of Platonic texts, which also have this type of participatory mm -hmm. vision of reality, people like yeah. Plotinus, um, where Augustine was in Milan with Ambrose. Yeah. There was a whole kind of, we could say, a study circle mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. uh, Christian Platonists. Yeah. And these allowed Augustine to think differently about the created order, uh, and again, the goodness of the material mm -hmm. order, and that it's precisely in matter that God communicates spiritual truth. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And it is, I always think it's fascinating that Augustine, uh, in some ways in book seven, has an intellectual conversion where he begins to be able to see that his understanding of God as somehow kind of this lum luminous material, like I don't know, put it like this, this material light suffusing the universe, uh, was, was really false, and that God actually is just being itself who communicates right. to all things being. So whatever being they have, they receive from God. He comes up with this understanding to be able to believe that God is the creator. Yeah. Uh, and this intellectual conversion is both necessary and not enough. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that says so much about really us, is that we, you know, it, we, we have to 
have some sense that our, our intellects have to change their understanding of the world and of God in order for us to convert. Yeah. Right. We have to, um, we can't believe in something in a way that if we think it is false. Right. Uh, so we need to have this intellectual conversion, this conversion, but the intellectual conversion is not enough. So uh, we're not going to, I, I want to shift into some other stuff, but could you just maybe say a word or two about Augustine's, you know, the, how it deepens into a moral conversion and yeah. his understanding of the need for grace. Sure, sure. Well, you mentioned book seven, Gustin's intellectual conversion. Yes. That's exactly right. Um, it's especially an, a new understanding about the nature of God mm-hmm. as a spiritual being who's yet present to all things. Uh, and then also coming to terms with the nature of evil, right? Mm-hmm. That evil is in fact uh, not some kind of perennial reality, thick ontological reality that's at war with God, but a lack of being, a privation of being, a privation of the good. So, but exactly as you say, that, that's not quite sufficient. Coming to see the truth of the Christian faith, being led, we could say, to the very doorsteps of the church, uh, is not yet to enter into the church, right? And book eight is the moral conversion. And it's such a study in contrast, those two books, yeah. book seven and book eight. Mm-hmm. Book seven, it's very much, uh, it's introspective, it's isolated, it's Augustine's own intellectual conversion. You know, Plotinus speaks of the ascent of the alone to the alone. Book eight is very different, right? Book eight is rife with other people, mm. right? All these other examples of conversion. So Augustine's story of his own moral conversion is nested like one of those Russian dolls mm-hmm. in the story of multiple other conversions. Yeah. Um, Victorinus, Anthony of the Desert, the courtiers of Trier, many others. Stories of other people who've tried to live the moral life and by grace can do so. Right? And so that's the story of the saints, isn't it? Mm-hmm. These kind of exempla that we can look up to and say, no, grace really does change the human person. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, really what leads to the climactic scene there of Augustine's moral conversion. Mm-hmm. Right? When the personified lady continents hold out mm-hmm. her hands right? mm-hmm. and points to all these other exempla, young men, young women, boys and girls, old men and old women, all of those who've been able to live a new life by grace. So I think that's a wonderful study in contrast, book seven and book eight. Well, that's uh, so well put. Let's um, let's uh, take a break. And uh, when we come back, uh, let's uh, dive into a couple other big uh, themes within Augustine and maybe a couple of other of his works as well. I, I do want to uh, ask a little bit about you know his understanding of original sin mm-hmm. and how he felt like this was really necessary to actually maintain the good news of the gospel. Sure. So look forward Wonderful. to talking about that with you. Very Thank good. Thank you. You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at AveMaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Catholic Theology Show. Today, we have Dr. Gerald Borsma, a professor of theology at Ave Maria University, and uh, we're discussing uh, Augustine. Uh, and uh, Dr. Borsma teaches a class on Augustine and has written on Augustine many, uh, many different publications. Uh, so we're just anyway, kind of uh, just really enjoying uh, this opportunity to learn more about really one of the great uh, saints and teachers of the faith. And so I raise this question that I think Augustine is somewhat known for as helping us to see the doctrine of original sin. 
Uh, and so maybe you could say a little bit about how did he come about articulating this, right? Uh, it doesn't begin with him, but how does he come about articulating uh, this reality? And maybe uh, tell us a little bit about, right, Augustine's not just thinking of these things on his own, right? He's in the midst of a, a lot of, there are a lot of controversies going on during his day. Could you sure. say a word about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, original sin, I think the first thing to say is not a very popular opinion today. Uh, right? yeah. We don't we don't usually think about a newborn baby, for example, mm-hmm. as anything wrong, right? They come mm-hmm. they come to the world innocent. Yes. And then later perhaps they're corrupted. Uh-huh. Right? They, are, yes. they hear their brothers fighting or the mm-hmm. parents arguing. Someone pushes them on the playground. They mm-hmm. think that's how I have to respond. But initially, no. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, Augustine says, no, it goes back before that. Right? Yeah. He takes very literally uh, Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. Yeah. Right? So at the moment of conception, something goes awry mm-hmm. and goes awry with us as, as rational beings. That is to say, in our intellect and our will. Yeah. Our intellect and will are mm-hmm. fundamentally, there's a, there's a disorder there. Mm-hmm. Right? They don't incline to truth perfectly or to the highest good perfectly. Right? We're often confused about what's true, and we often love lower goods rather than the highest good. And so part of the of conversion, of the new life of grace, is having a reorientation of our intellects and our will. Yeah. Right? And Augustine's Confessions is really a story of that. Mm-hmm. And that's why the Confessions was so controversial when okay. it first came out. One of the early readers, Pelagius, mm-hmm. he read this and thought, oh no, th- this is hopelessly fatalistic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that we are born with some kind of uh, yeah, problem deep-seated problem with our intellect and will, well, then no one would ever strive for the virtuous life, mm. right? Pelagius, he, he read the Confessions and said, well, no, if, if our Lord says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, surely that must be possible. God would not command us to do something of which we're incapable, right? Um, well, I guess I would agree, but it's really grace that makes us capable, mm-hmm. right? And so it's the Confessions that set off the firestorm that later became known as, as the Pelagian Controversy. Right, and Pelagius, Julian of Aclanum, and his associates thought first of all, no, that, that original sin again is a fatalistic doctrine. That we we kind of have not so much a fallen will, but bad examples, and so we have to turn to the good example, which is Christ. Yes. That remains extrinsic. Christ, we have to look to Him as a model, follow Him, and then we can be converted. Yeah, right? Augustine's account of grace is much more inside. Yeah. It's inward. Mm-hmm. Right? It's really deep within our knowing and loving that are turned around. Uh, yeah, and, and I think uh, one of the things that Augustine puts his finger on, because up until now, it might be, you know, people might be thinking, you know, maybe Pelagianism isn't so bad, uh, but ultimately is that if we could follow a good example, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Why did the word have to become incarnate and then have to die. Somehow, right. why is the death of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, how does that become the means of our right, redemption, of our right. salvation? And that's an indication that merely a good example would not be enough. There's something no. right in our in our very will that needs to be kind of sacrificed on the cross and then reborn in the resurrection. Right. Right, wow. right, and you know when he's when he's reading uh, the Confessions, Pelagius, and he, he's thinking about this, and uh, Augustine's line in there that really vexed him is, "Command what you will, and will what you command." Mm-hmm. In terms of our our moral change, what Augustine r- insists on is the priority of grace. 
mm-hmm. right? That, that grace comes before. Before we seek God, he seeks us. As, as Paul says, right? While we were enemies of God, mm-hmm. Christ loved us and died for us. Yeah. And so grace has to come before and change us, grab mm-hmm. our hearts, elicit our desires, turn them to be towards him himself. Mm-hmm. And then grace walks with us, accompanies with us. So it's never something that, you know, I've been changed and now I'm doing it. No, grace comes along. And even at the end, you know, if by the grace of God, we, we merit some type of reward, Augustine would say his immortal words, grace, sorry, merit is God crowning his own gifts. Yeah. Right? Merit is God crowning his own gifts. So prevenient, accompanying, and perfective grace, uh, there, there's nothing of which when I come to the pearly gates, I can pat myself on my back. You know, hey, where's my crown? Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's always a gift. And the yeah. giftedness of existence, of nature, and of grace is, I think, the place to start when thinking about Augustine's theology of grace. That, that, is, that is so beautiful. Uh, and, and I think in some ways, right, uh, Augustine's kind of, um, I don't know if it's official name. Is it official? The doctor of grace? That's right, yeah. I think that's how he's known in the, certainly in the Middle Ages and in the, in continuing in the church, the doctor of grace, that we understand salvation, right? He said, it's not just that salvation is a gift, but everything is mm-hmm. a gift from God. Uh, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts about this. So it seems to me there's two things at work here in his understanding of, of, of original sin. Partly what he's... What what he's getting at is uh, is that there's like there's a fundamental flaw in us uh, and in the whole world mm. that we're that, that's like it's all ultimately when we recognize that original sin that original wound that original you know I don't know off balance and we kind of begin to recognize no wonder all of our attempts always my attempts at virtue my attempts at having a good family my attempts at trying to organize a society all of our attempts always fail it's kind of a relief to recognize that oh we 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 are it's kind of like your car you you know when you finally realize your car's out of alignment it's kind of great because oh yeah but but augustine never adopts that view apart from the good news of Jesus Christ. Precisely. So it's yeah. never kind of saying, oh, your car's out of alignment. Sorry, it's your car's out of alignment and I can fix it. Yeah. Your will's out of alignment. It's curved in on itself, as he described. It's right, in curvatus in se, right? It's, it's yeah. we're made to look at God and to kind of wonder at the beauty of others and even the beauty of our own creation. But instead, we turn in on ourselves mm. and see my own ego at the center of the world and right so you're never separating in a certain sense the diagnosis from the cure right and right well the catechism oh no please i'll say the catechism has that idea that right the original sin is just the reverse side of the good news of jesus christ like right it's when we hear the gospel it's almost like that's when we realize oh yeah. oh i needed to be redeemed Oh, no wonder life has been so hard. And this is why he thought, you know, Pelagius was putting a stake in the heart of the gospel. Mm -hmm. When you first hear Pelagius preach, and he was a great preacher, he sounds very, very hopeful, very optimistic, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And and it was precisely this kind of buoyant optimism Mm -hmm. that that I think attracted him as a preacher. He would appeal to to kind of people's better instincts, kind of like a coach of elite athletes trying to live up to their full potential, yeah. right? The kind of nature, native reserves of, of moral greatness that lie deep within. He was trying to pull that out, right? Uh-huh. And he thought, well, Augustine's teaching on original sin, that's destructive of people's effort. But exactly as you say, that's not the case mm-hmm. because Pelagius wasn't giving an accurate account of our, our existence after the fall, right? 
um, that, that, again, the moral life, uh, our lives, uh, whether it's ourselves, each other, our family, society, there's always a bug in the system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's, it's fundamentally, necessity and it's fundamentally pride, right? Mm-hmm. In some part, it's, it's that pride that I, that I take myself at, as the center of the universe instead of receiving right, everything right. from God. So um, that's really, so there's sometimes I think when people set up or when people talk about Augustine, they'll talk about kind of his early controversy with the Manichees right. uh, in which he kind of defends the goodness of creation and the and the wisdom of revelation, right? Um, right, the goodness of God who overcomes evil, right? Uh, and then maybe uh, you talked about it. The later controversy with Plagius um, and this sense of kind of no, we um, yes, creation is good, but it's not that good, right? We need grace. Don't forget the element that Jesus had to die on the cross right. and send His Spirit so that we could have new life. Uh, there's another. A big controversy for which he's known, right, with the the Donatists. Sure. So, would you say a little bit about that, and maybe how do you kind of introduce that into your sure. course? Yeah, yeah. Well, controversy is the right word, and Augustine was a controversialist. Right? He was a he was a pugnacious type of person. Right? He is a type that did his best thinking in the in the fires of controversy. That's where he forged his real thinking. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's you kind of sometimes think about maybe some more Pacific. Uh, medieval theologians, mm-hmm. Augustine is not does not write in that op, in that world, right? Um, so you mentioned the Manichaeans initially. Yes, uh, upon his conversion, the first I would say decade in which mm-hmm. he's doing serious writing, it's always against the Manichaeans. Yeah. Consider that he writes five times on the first two chapters of Genesis, mm-hmm. affirming the goodness of the created order, um, that God is present in it, animating it, that it becomes the vehicle of our redemption. Uh, yeah, the goodness of the church is, communicated is part through of matter. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the unity of the Old New Testament. Mm-hmm. Right? All this is a forge against the Manichaeans. Later, he comes back to Africa, and that's really where he comes upon a scene that's already quite old in Africa, namely the Donatist controversy. Right? Uh, the Donatists were a sectarian group uh, in North Africa, but in many places, the majority in North Africa. Right? So if you went into every large town, mm-hmm. there would be two cathedrals, a Donatist cathedral and a Catholic cathedral, right? Donatist bishop and a Catholic mm-hmm. bishop. Uh, they were more powerful, perhaps, in the kind of remote areas and the major cities, which were under strong Roman presence, would be more Catholic. But it, it appealed to kind of the rebellious spirit, you might say, uh, of African sensibilities. Mm-hmm. They called the Catholic Church the Church Transmare, the Church over the seas, which is always mm-hmm. being kind of controlled by imperial forces. Right? Mm-hmm. And Augustine, uh, having spent so much time in Italy, uh, saw that, no, for the church to be Catholic, to be universal of the whole, it couldn't simply be in Africa. Right? Yeah. And so somehow the African church would have to be in communion with the rest of the world. Um, so he comes back with that, we could say, more universal vision of the church. And immediately he's thrown into the controversies uh, in North Africa. Uh, and so much of the 35 years that he spends in North Africa is responding to the Donatists. Um, he does so through public debates, through writings, through letters. Uh, in fact, teaching rhyming poems to his <laughs> congregants. Um, but both through, we could say, carrot and stick, uh, he attempted to convince the Donatists of uh, Catholic claims of the necessity of the universal church. Okay. 
So um, really beginning with the need for the Catholic, Catholic meaning universal. Right. And, and that it really inflected itself in two ways, both mm-hmm. Augustine's sacramental theology uh-huh. and his theology of the church, his ecclesiology. Okay. Right? So in terms of the sacraments, uh, the Donatists held that only their particular little conventicles had authentic sacraments. Right? All others were invalid. Um, and part of this really goes back to the legacy of how Donatism came to be. Right? At the end of the Diocletian persecutions, uh, some Catholic bishops had handed over the sacred items, the sacred books, sacred vessels, and these became known as traditores, from handing over. Oh, traitors, right? Traitors, literally. Mm-hmm. Right? After the kind of the dust settled, persecutions ended, some of these, including bishops, wanted their positions back. They, they, they'd handed on the sacred items. Mm-hmm. Now they said, we want to be bishops again. Others said, no, you, you're out now. In fact, if you want to come back in, you have to be rebaptized and reordained, mm-hmm. right? And so that became the Donatist position, right? Rebaptism before you can have all the other sacraments. Uh, the Catholics, already before Augustine, held no. Baptism has uh, an indelible mark on the soul. You're forever baptized. Mm-hmm. What you need to do is convert, mm-hmm. do penance, mm-hmm. enter back into a regular sacramental life of the church. But this became, I would say, a fault line in North Africa both sides appealing to the great African bishop Cyprian. And so that's one thing that Augustine does when he comes back uh, to Africa, is he he appeals especially to Cyprian Mm -hmm. and the older African theology in emphasizing that baptism is is a once-for-all thing. You're forever Mm -hmm. part of of the church. Uh, He would often avail himself of the image of Roman soldiers who deserted. When they came back, what they would look for is whether they had the, the pignus, the kind of uh, tattoo, the stamp on their right hand. If they did, they were still members of the Roman army. They didn't have to be rebranded, you could say. Okay. So too yeah. with those mm-hmm. who had fallen away from the yeah, church. Yeah, and yeah, uh, this really then gets expressed in the teaching of the church that the sacraments work, right? Ex opere operato, right? Yeah. From the work having been worked, they work from the nature of the sacraments, which was ultimately the promise of Christ because it's the power of Christ in the sacraments. Right. And uh, I think all of us have a kind of uh, a native sympathy for wanting holy priests, holy sure. bishops, uh, right? It would be more fun to go to mass with a saint than to go to, uh, or a dynamic preacher, than to go to mass with a you know lukewarm priest, sure, right? All sure. these things are true in some ways. And yet, on the other hand, if we think that it's the priest who happens to be more dynamic or perhaps holier, that it's the priest who's confecting the Eucharist, we're really confused, right? And I think Augustine really put his finger on that, that it's Christ who baptizes, right? right? It's Christ who celebrates the Eucharist. And, uh, and you know, we would it would really be very hard for us to figure out, like, who baptized us? Did they ever sin? When did they sin? Precisely. Did they sin later? How do we know how holy they were? Right. And this kind of succession, yeah. these lines of holiness, were so important to the Donatists. Yeah, right? yeah, and yeah. And a little aside here, when you think about Augustine telling his own story of baptism, right, in the Confessions, mm-hmm. you might think he'd introduce it with trumpets, because that's kind of the high-water mark of the Confessions. Mm-hmm. But he says it, you know, in one Latin word, we were baptized. He doesn't go into it much. And you might say, Why? Well, I think he doesn't want to play to the Donatists. He was, of course, baptized by a very famous, very holy bishop, Ambrose. But he doesn't even mention that. He just says, we were baptized. And I think that's a great example of Augustine's insistence, uh, precisely as you say, that it's not the holiness of the minister that constitutes Mm -hmm. the validity of the sacrament, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's Christ uh, who works through these 
uh, instruments. Yeah. Could you um, just say a little bit about, you know, tell us a little bit about your own story. Um, how did you get interested in reading Augustine? How did you get interested in studying theology? Um, or you're a convert uh, to the Catholic Church? Maybe, you know, in, in a couple minutes, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, I grew up in a wonderful Christian family um, in which theology was very important. In fact, mm-hmm. my dad is a theologian, so I think I came by it honestly. Yeah, yeah, a uh, wonderful I, uh, theologian who's, uh, you know, written a lot of great books on the fathers. He has, yeah. And uh, their, their kind of love of liturgy, love of scripture. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I studied theology as an undergraduate. Um, I took a number of theology classes from a, a local Catholic college, which uh, deeply uh, informed me and wanted me, kind of compelled me, I think, to want to think more about studying theology. I took some time teaching and then decided, no, I'm going to go on for graduate studies. And I actually came to Ave Maria University to yes. do a master's in theology. And I wrote my thesis on uh, a 20th century theologian by the name of Henri de Lubac, De Lubach. And particularly, I was interested in his theology of the church, right, on the unity of the church. And as I was reading through De Lubach's corpus, I noticed Augustine is everywhere. Yeah. And I was speaking with my, uh, my, I'll never forget this, speaking with my director, uh, Professor Dr. Matthew Levering, who many of you know, yes. wonderful person. He said, well, maybe you should just go right to the source. Do a PhD on Augustine. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he put me in contact with uh, various Augustine people, and they ended up going uh, to the University of Durham in England to study uh, Augustine with uh, Professor Lewis Ayers there. And so that's uh, kind of my introduction, you could say, to scholarly life okay. of, of Augustine. Yeah, yeah. And, and what was your, now you were with more uh, Reformed tradition in which you were raised, and you... That's right, uh, yeah. yeah. I grew up in a Reformed, Dutch Reformed uh, family, mm-hmm. um, a wonderful community. And um, I would say quite a long period of kind of discernment. Mm-hmm. In 2008, I was received into the, into the Catholic Church. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's uh, you know, anyway, uh, very, very beautiful. And yeah. uh, thank you for sharing uh, that with us. So just imagine your students five years down the road. You know, they've taken your class. Uh, maybe they're, you know, uh, lawyers. Uh, maybe they're, you know, working in a bank. Uh, maybe they're, you know, homemakers. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe they're uh, running podcasts, uh, <laughs> you know, you- YouTubers or whatever people are doing these days. What are things that, you know, maybe what are, you know, I don't know, two, three or four things that you want them to carry with them? Right. You know, that they would remember about Augustine uh, from your course. Yeah, well, again, to kind of circle back, I think, you know, Augustine is one of these towering figures, Mm -hmm. uh, and that really is an understatement. Um, He kind of defines, we could say, Western Catholic theology as kind of giving definitive systematic shape to what what the Apostle Paul and and the rest of Scripture speak about. And one way I think that's helpful to kind of present that is through Augustine's controversy. So we've spoken a bit about his theology of creation, of the goodness of creation, the same God who makes matter, redeems matter, who forms Mm -hmm. us, also reforms us. Mm -hmm. His theology of the church, right? Uh, Some we've spoken about here. His theology of sacraments, Mm -hmm. the necessity of the unity of the church. Mm -hmm. His theology uh, of the Holy Eucharist. Again, he gets that very much through his controversy of the Donatists. And the last controversy that really marked Augustine, and therefore also marked Western theological tradition, is his debates with the Pelagians, right, mm-hmm. on the primacy of grace, right? And so I would think those kind of three things, his theology of grace, his theology of the sacraments in the church, mm-hmm. and his theology of creation, 
I mean, you could spend a lifetime there, and yeah. I intend to. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's really beautifully put. Let's uh, maybe just uh, kind of as we uh, begin to close, I'd love to just kind of ask you three other uh, just kind of maybe more personal questions. Um, sure. What's a book you've been reading lately? A book I've been reading lately. That's that's a good question. I've actually been working a lot on on something in St. Thomas. And, you mm-hmm. know, St. Thomas is very much a an heir of uh, of Augustine, and it's uh, on, on Aquinas's uh, way of knowing by way of co-naturality, by affectivity, mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. way of experience. And I think in this way, Aquinas is very much uh, in the legacy uh, of Augustine. So no, that's 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 excellent to hear. Um, yeah, it, I think it is. I think there's kind of a caricature that Augustine has kind of one approach to theology and Thomas sometimes has another. And that's always struck me as profoundly wrong. We did a conference a number of years ago here at Ave with the Aquinas Center for Theological Renewal called Aquinas the Augustinian. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And tried to show that, right. I mean, if you look within his quotes after scripture, yeah. right. Uh, Augustine, you know, is the most quoted. It yeah. uh, shows up throughout his biblical commentaries, shows up throughout his sacred doctrine. And I really think in some ways, uh, this might be a little bit, uh, I don't know, maybe this is provocative, but I think that because Augustine wrote in controversial terms, he expressed doctrines in the heat of the debate, he was often, I mean, in some ways his culture was a little bit like ours. Mm-hmm. It was profound, it was pluralistic, it was uh, secular, it was hostile, there was kind of a thriving, uh, ant, somewhat anti-Christian but non-Christian way of thinking and you know all this sort of stuff. So he's, he's in the midst of all these things. The church, as it's responding, also... In, in has a lot of, conf- you know, there's different divisions within it, uh, you right. know, the Donatists, uh, all these different elements. And so I think there's also an ability sometimes if you just take Augustine on its on his own that you could, I don't know, you could eventually like almost, you could get confused uh, because sure. it's so big. I mean, it's funny, uh, you know, St. Peter, and I think it's the second, his second Peter, Paul writes so much that people read Paul and get confused. Right, and so they need to read it with the church. Uh, yeah. Well, in some ways, I think that Aquinas kind of is reading Augustine right, mm-hmm. with the wisdom of the church. That's well put. You yeah, know, no, uh, I very much agree. And, and I think that's really a beautiful element. It's been great to see you um, both be a consummate Augustine scholar and now developing as a scholar of St. Thomas as well, which is great. And you have an upcoming... Um, you're going, I think, to, you have a scholar, what is it, a fellowship in, in Germany yeah, to that's study? Right, this fall, yeah, yeah. I'll be going to the University of Tübingen. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, continuing some work on St. Thomas. Yeah. So it's an exciting time. No, that's Certainly. really wonderful. So uh, second question, what's a, maybe just one, uh, what's one of a daily practice that you carry out to, you know, to kind well, of draw to, closer to God? Well, yeah, I would say particularly with Augustine. One thing I try to do uh-huh. daily, and, I, and, and in a spiritual level, is take Augustine to prayer. I think the Confessions is a prayer, mm-hmm. uh, and so you can read it as such. Yeah. Um, so just reading, you know, a, a little paragraph, you know, mm-hmm. prayerfully, yeah. intentionally, in a style of kind of Alexio Divina, uh, has, has been a great prophet to me. So, yeah, Augustine is one of those saints you can easily pray with. That's beautifully yeah. put. And uh, last question. What's a view that you held about God uh, that you discovered to be false? And what was the truth you discovered? Um, yeah, that's, well, that's a very good question. I would say uh, what, what Augustine has helped me to see, and I don't think I see it perfectly yet, is the way in which we have to affirm 
In fact, I know I don't see that perfectly yet. <laughs> the way in which we have to affirm God's, God's radical nearness, his imminence, mm. his proximity to all things, yeah. and at the same time, his radical transcendence, mm-hmm. that he's wholly other, that he's uh. not a being in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but simply, as you mentioned before, being itself. Yeah. And Augustine's vision of the divine presence mm-hmm. as, as imminent on the one hand and wholly transcendent on the other uh, is in many ways the story of his conversion, but it's something that I'm, I would say, in my ongoing conversion, yeah. trying to discern and, and affirm both sides of that yeah, uh, as best we can. That's great. One of the professors who uh, founded the graduate program in theology here, uh, Father Matthew Lamb, yes. uh, would, uh, I don't know if I ever, he was a you know wonderful lover of St. Thomas and uh, St. Augustine, uh, but I don't know if he ever gave a homily, which at some point he didn't try to draw on that Augustinian theme of God's imminent presence and also transcendence. But he would always say, "In whom, you know, quoting uh, Paul, uh, but you know, in in you know, the one in whom we live and move and have our being." And it it kind of is. It's 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 just a radically we we want to somehow picture think God is another somehow not in me or somehow right. another thing in the world. Yeah. And it, it is such a powerful way of understanding that God is really at the heart of all existence. Well, thank you so much, uh, Gerald, well, thank uh, for you being very on much. the show. Uh, for listeners who are interested in learning more about Augustine, I would encourage you to listen to a earlier episode uh, with Dr. John Cavadini, in which we focus exclusively on the confessions. And uh, also, hopefully, we'll be able to have Dr. Borsma again and maybe do a deep dive into some of Augustine's specific works. That would be a delight. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, thank, thank you, you so very much, much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on the Catholic Theology Show.